0: Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Alison DeAngelis.
1: I'm Adam Feuerstein. And I'm Damian Garde.
0: It's Thursday, August 18th, and here's what we're going to talk about this week.
1: STAT's Tarabano joins us to discuss how private equity's mounting interest in autism care has led to an untenable situation for parents and children in the US.
2: And we'll explain the latest news in the life sciences, including a watershed FDA approval, the future of treatments for ALS, and the debate around what would be the year's biggest pharmaceutical merger.
0: But first, a word from our sponsor.
1: Hi, I'm Angus McCauley of STAT. Thanks for listening. It's an exciting time for biopharma. We're seeing real potential in new treatments but they require big innovation. Linda Matiason from Cytiva's Nucleic Acid Therapeutics team is here to tell us more.
2: Thanks, Angus. mRNA vaccines, cell-free CAR T and more are changing or poised to change lives. At Cytiva, we are innovating production of small batch, personalized medicines They are creating new hope for treating cancers and other diseases. Visit Cytiva.com slash Advanced Therapeutics to learn how we are working with customers to bring their ideas to reality. That's C Y T forward slash Advanced Therapeutics.
0: All right. So, Adam, I'm going to throw it over to you to talk about this drug approval we got this week that was truly Many years in the making, Bluebird Bio had some news. Tell us about it.
1: Yeah, that's right. Yeah, on uh, Wednesday afternoon, uh, the Food and Drug Administration approved Bluebird's gene therapy for beta thalassemia. That's a rare inherited blood disorder. The The therapy is called Zinteglo. Uh, and yeah, it's notable for many reasons. You know, it's the, you know, we talk a lot about gene therapy, both in the pages of Stat and here on the podcast. Uh, this is the third gene therapy approved in the United States, uh, the first since 2019. Uh, and it's also the first gene therapy that targets a chronic blood disorder.
0: This was something that Bluebird had trying to been trying to get towards for years. And originally, the drug was approved in Europe. Um, and they really struggled in the U.S. Adam, wait, remind me... What the initial problems were when they approached the FDA to get this drug approved?
1: Yeah, You know, if you go way back, uh, you know, uh, Bluebird is one of those companies that was really kind of at the forefront of gene therapy and the sort of new wave of gene therapy. You know, at one point they were worth about 11 billion dollars market cap, uh, you know. Uh, and they have, in more recent years, have kind of stumbled. You know, they've had some clinical trial setbacks. They've had manufacturing issues, some regulatory delays. You know, Allison, you mentioned Europe. Uh, you know, Zintegla was actually approved in Europe first. It was approved back in 2019. But... Um, But they actually they never rolled it out there commercially in Europe because they couldn't reach an agreement with the European countries. You know, obviously in Europe, um, national health services set the price for for drugs in Europe, unlike here in the United States. And Bluebird and and the national health services across Europe, particularly in Germany, couldn't reach reach an agreement on on how much to, to pay for Zinteglo or reimbursement. And so they actually pulled it off the market in Europe. They withd- they withdrew from Europe entirely. Um, now, here in the United States, maybe we're burying the lead a little bit. Uh, the price for Zinteglo here in the United States is going to be $2.8 million per patient. Uh, that makes it one of the most expensive medicines uh, ever sold here in the United States. Uh, and it also actually does not include the uh, associated hospital uh, costs that uh, relate to the treatment. Um, but with that said uh you know icer which is the drug policy watchdog group has actually done an analysis of Zinteglo and said that it would be cost effective up to about 3 million dollars per patient and that's because the the you know lifelong care for a beta thalassemia patient is is about 6.5 million dollars uh, you know across of the lifetime of a of a beta thal patient these are patients that undergo chronic blood transfusions. You know, basically every month they have to go in and have blood transfusions. Um, As a result of those blood transfusions, oftentimes those patients have um, excess iron levels in their blood and they have to be treated for that. So essentially the idea here is that this one-time treatment uh, at 2.8 million dollars is going to be cost effective. You know, well, obviously we have to wait to see how uh, insurers handle this. The company Bluebird has told me that you know, in their preliminary discussions, at least with insurance companies here in the U.S., that there was not a lot of pushback on the
0: price. Wow, and that's a that's a boon to get Icer to also say that the drug is cost effective. That doesn't always happen.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that does not always happen. Exactly. Usually, usually I think maybe it was a little bit of a surprise that, you know, ICER came out and said that this was cost effective.
0: So and then, Adam, you had earlier in the week written about another uh, very interesting drug that's going to the FDA for approval, um, Brainstorm is filing um, or is said that they're going to ask the FDA to approve their ALS uh, therapy, despite the agency's recommendation that they'd not submit the drug for approval.
1: <laughs> yeah, there seems to be a trend now of companies rushing to file uh, ALS drugs to the FDA, despite, uh, I guess, maybe mediocre or negative data. Um, Brainstorm Cell Therapeutics is another example of that. Um, uh, a couple of years ago they had run a phase 3 study of a stem cell it's a personalized stem cell treatment actually it's called neurone uh, and it's supposed to slow the progression of ALS uh, they ran a phase 3 study and um, neurone did not work <laughs> the uh, you know there was no difference in uh, the disease progression between neurone and placebo um, although the company has said uh, that certain certain types of ALS patients, patients with kind of less advanced disease uh, may benefit from this treatment. And what was really kind of novel or unique about the situation was that um, the FDA actually put out a public statement a while back, essentially saying to, to brainstorm, do not file this with us, do not file neurone to us for uh, for approval. The data do not support the approval of this therapy. Um, you know, really uh, a very unique situation because you know the FDA, as we know, does not uh, often speak publicly about experimental drugs or experiment, experimental treatments. And this is, was a, a a situation where they actually did act, put out a public statement. Uh, so, you know, Brainstorm is kind of taking a big risk here that they are essentially going to file this anyway. Um, when I spoke to them this week, they said, you know, I asked them like, well, what's changed? Um, they say that um, there was actually an error in in the publication in the data from their phase three study. This was an error. This was an error caused by a vendor, basically a statistical uh, vendor who, you know, basically um, did something wrong with the analysis. And so when they went to correct it, They say that there's more substantial evidence of efficacy now in the study. And so for that reason, they believe that the FDA should review this. Um, I did ask them, you know, oftentimes companies will go to the FDA in advance and say, hey, do you think we should file? Uh, And so I asked brainstorm. I said, did you go to the FDA and say, hey, do you think we should file now? Um, They refused to comment about that, which I think probably tells you that the FDA has not told them.
2: That they should file has not changed their mind. So we'll see what happens. It's an interesting situation for Brainstorm because I think, you know, when the FDA made that very uncharacteristic public announcement, the perception was, at least for me and I think a lot of people, that the FDA did that in response to the reaction among uh patient groups related to ALS, who are among the more vocal, well-organized, and I think understandably frustrated patient groups with which the agency regularly deals. And so, you know, there was such an outpouring of demand among those patients that the FDA take this seriously, that they took the step of basically saying, look, these data aren't up to it. But the world has changed a bit since then, in that there are treatments from Amelix, which we've discussed before, uh, an ALS treatment that is soon to have an FDA decision. And then similarly, I think last week or the week before, the biogen treatment for a subset of patients with ALS, which is also apparently progressing through the FDA. So, if the calculus on Brainstorm's part was kind of leveraging that popular support for any kind of therapy for this drug, the world has kind of shifted under their feet now where, you know, amylox and biogen, there's a lot of debate about those data, but I think some, you know, a disinterested party would look at the evidence for the Amelix and Biogen drugs and see a little bit more to work with than perhaps what Brainstorm is presenting.
1: Yeah, I, I think you're right, David. And you know, I don't, I don't certainly don't speak for the ALS community. Uh, you know, I do sort of keep tabs as a keep tabs on on the community as a reporter, and I've written a lot of stories about these ALS drugs that you mentioned. What's interesting about Brainstorm and Neuron is that there's sort of a there's sort of a splinter group of ALS patients who really believe in brainstorms treatment and push for the company to file, push for its approval. But I would not say that that is a unanimous opinion amongst ALS patients, ALS community. Um, You sort of tend to get a little bit more of a lukewarm response when you talk to some ALS physicians about this, you know, I I quoted one in my story, you know, an ALS physician expert who said, like, this doesn't work. You know, I, I've not seen any data presented that that says to me that this works. Um, and so. Whereas some of the other therapies that you mentioned, Damien, I think have gotten a much more widespread support, including from the ALS Association. Um, I don't necessarily think that people see Neuron
2: and Brainstorm in the same way. So separately, there was news this week that Merck, the major pharmaceutical company, made a deal with a company called Orna, O-R-N-A. To pay $150 million up front and a lot of money on the back end, I guess the dollars aren't that important, but maybe most important is they're buying into a form of messenger RNA, in this case, circular RNA, hence the O in front of the letters R and an A in the the company's title. But the, the interesting kind of backstory here is Merck has had a little bit of an odyssey with mRNA. They were an early partner of Moderna way back when the company was private. Um, Most of the projects on which the two worked, Merck has kind of stepped away from. And then famously the the two companies kind of had a dalliance in the early days of COVID-19 in which Merck was considering partnering uh, on what would become Moderna's fantastically successful COVID-19 vaccine, but that didn't end up happening. And so it's it's an interesting deal to kind of look at in the context of Merck and its relationship with this technology.
0: Yeah, and I think to like zoom out a little bit, it's interesting in that the industry, I mean, we have two mRNA products that are approved, you know, both for, for COVID-19. Um, you know, most of Moderna's pipeline that they were, I mean, actually, essentially all of their original pipeline um, for mRNA products like is still in development, but the industry is already kind of looking at like next generation RNA products, whether it's, you know, circular RNA or, like, long non-coding RNA. Um, Flagship has another uh, RNA company that's focused on circular RNA called Laurent. They've got company in them. Um, and there are a lot of other people watching in the industry to figure out, like, wh- who are the next big players in this RNA field. And, you know, Merck isn't the only company that's feeling a little bit of regret for, you know, it's its kind of hot and cold relationship with messenger RNA in the past. I sat down with a bunch of folks who are in this RNA field um, at Bio for, for a panel. And one of my panelists was from Novartis and was saying that they, they view the field with a little bit of regret because they had had in like, you know, 2008, 2010, 2012, they had had mRNA work that they were doing. There was a vaccine business that they were working on and they divested it. And now they're trying to figure out like how to rethink this and how to get back into this game. I mean, this is, you know, Orna is in kind of good company because we have seen, you know, mRNA companies get good funding since the Moderna story has taken off. I mean, you know, Sanofi bought Translate Bio. Other firms are still kind of waiting to see where they're going to play and which which I think form of, you know, messenger RNA they're really going to invest a lot of time and money into. Um, But it's a whole new world, I think, for for mRNA and these Yeah, these firms that have had these kind of hot and cold relationships with it are like really seriously considering, you know, where they where they kind of tie up and and which forms of this this therapeutic they invest in.
1: So uh, sticking with Merck, uh, but changing topics a little bit, Damien, uh, we're still waiting for Merck to buy
2: CIGIN. Um Was there any development this week? There was yeah late last week. So you know, stepping back, people may recall that uh, in mid June, the Wall Street Journal reported that Merck was interested in acquiring the company Cgen, a cancer-focused biotech company in Seattle. And you know, more details on that emerged mostly through the journal's reporting about what the price might be, et cetera. But one thing that people I think really fixated on was two perceived, I guess, gates to that deal happening. One was some outstanding data on uh, one of CGen's cancer treatments. That data came a few weeks ago, and it ended up being positive. The other was a ruling in an arbitration between CGen and one of its partners over royalties, which you know is kind of in the weeds. But anyway, that ruling came last Friday. It went against CGen. But I think the perception was this is, in a sense, a net positive, at least for the company's stock, because those were the two things that people assumed would be you know, things that Merck would be waiting on before pulling the trigger on this now, you know, beyond rumored and just like hotly expected deal. It has not materialized the the offer, or at least the public disclosure of an offer. And It's interesting, you can kind of track in CGEN stock price, the sentiment around whether this deal will ever actually happen. The journal reported that Merck was looking at a roughly $40 billion offer, which would amount to about $200 a share. So CGEN stock price's relationship to the number 200 kind of tells you just how people are feeling. It has traded as high as 180 something when it seemed like a deal was imminent. It has since settled down to like 169, especially in recent days, which is to say, I think the risk people perceive is one that Merck will decide this is too much trouble, more trouble than it's worth, or rather the two companies will not be able to settle on a price that CGEN likes because Merck now has in its negotiating pocket the fact that they lost this arbitration ruling that I mentioned. And then there's really the the unknown unknown, which is how the Federal Trade Commission will look at a deal like this. The FTC has been very public about its concern about anti-competitive mergers, specifically in the pharmaceutical industry. Merck obviously makes Keytruda, uh, one of the best-selling cancer medicines of all time, and Seattle, or CGen is, is devoted to cancer as well. And I think the question is, to what degree does the ftc perceive nuance in the drug industry which is to say would it look at merck and CGen and say they're both in cancer so that's an anti-competitive deal and then sue to block it or you know take whatever action they want or do they perceive it as like you know keytruda is used in non-small cell lung cancer whereas CGen is more devoted to you know the nuances of how oncology actually works we don't have very many test cases for that and so in many ways this deal is a bellwether for a lot of things that i think are keeping pharmaceutical people up at night. An estimated 1 in 44 children in the United States has Autism Spectrum Disorder, a neurological and developmental disorder that affects how people interact with others, communicate, learn, and behave. Many parents have turned to a popular form of therapy called Applied Behavior Analysis, or ABA. This form of therapy is
1: supposed to be highly specialized for each child. But stat reporter Tarabano has found that the profit push from private equity firms, which have been drawn in by the promise of insurance reimbursement and the rising rate of autism in children across the U.S., is leading providers to cut corners and hound families.
0: Tara joins us today to talk about her investigation and how private equity is changing the healthcare landscape. Tara, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me.
1: So, Tara, to start, can you tell us a bit more about this form of therapy? Is it embraced in the medical field, or is there a bit of skepticism around it?
3: Applied Behavior Analysis, or what's known as ABA, is a form of therapy that's designed to cut down on unwanted behaviors and uh, improve social skills and language skills in people with autism. Right now, it is the most popular form of autism therapy. Uh, All 50 states require some coverage. It's usually the first thing a doctor recommends. So I would say within the medical community, it is pretty well embraced. it is pretty controversial, though, among people with autism. A lot of adults with autism who had ABA as kids now say they felt it was very abusive. They say they're traumatized. It kind of takes away the things, um, in their estimation, that makes them unique and kind of tries to to mold them into, you know, neurotypical people. And you know, they say it's it's fine to have autism. It's not a disease. They're they're they don't need to be uh, changed in that way.
0: That's so interesting. And it, it doesn't sound like this is a therapy that you, you know, go to for like one or two hours a week. I was really taken by the examples in the article, like the, the one mother who was speaking from the Los Angeles area who was told by a clinician who hadn't even spoken to her son before that he needed this intensive 40 hour a week treatment plan. Even though, like, her son's psychologist had recommended just, you know, maybe 15 hours a week. I mean, 40 hours a week, that's a full time job's worth of therapy. Um, And is that a common story across people who are seeking ABA um, for themselves or their family members that it's a very intensive, I mean, really full time practice?
3: Yeah, so that's very common in the industry, actually. ABA was, was sort of founded on this idea of what they call early intensive intervention. So up to 40 hours a week, sometimes even more, uh, on very young kids. The idea is start them early and, and very intensive long hours. And, I think that some practitioners feel that's the most effective way, but actually what's interesting is there's been some recent research reviews um, over all of the research that's been done on ABA, and it's kind of cast doubt on the utility of that 40 hours a week uh, rule. You know, there's a Cochrane review actually in 2018, and they said there's not really a lot of evidence that shows it's effective. Um, I would also say uh, there's a lot of people who feel that private equity is sort of abusing that that ABA principle of more hours. And they're saying, you know, everybody needs 30 hours, everybody needs 40 hours, when, when actually I think a lot of people feel that's not true.
2: Well, right. And that gets to really the other pillar of your story, which is that each of those hours is billable. As you mentioned, all 50 states um, reimburse for this therapy. And thus, there is a profit motive to recommending and mandating more and more of these hours. So I guess you know as you point out private equity firms have bought up practices across the country focused on ABA. How did how did the industry get into autism therapy?
3: There's several reasons that private equity wanted to start making these investments. Um, The primary one is reimbursement. Private equity started buying ABA companies after states put these mandates in place that insurers have to cover autism services, specifically ABA. Um, Before that, a lot of this was paid for out of pocket and only, you know, wealthier families could afford it. Um, it's also a very fragmented industry, so as we know with private equity, they really like these industries where they can buy you know something small and then roll it up by these other small guys into, until they have you know a larger company that they can resell for a much higher multiple um so a b a years ago uh, and still to some extent there's a lot of these very small mom and pop shops across the country with one or two lead therapists. Um, and private equity has really taken advantage of that and created these huge chains. Um, and finally, as, as you mentioned early on, autism rates continue to increase. The CDC says it's currently one out of 44 kids in the U.S. Um, and so there's this supply demand problem. Um, lots of families need services and there are not enough autism therapy providers out there.
1: Some of the people you spoke to said that having private equity dollars flood into the ABA field is a good thing because it means that more centers and virtual providers can open up for business. Uh, as, you, like, you know, as you said, you know, there's, there's a lot of demand. Um, how, how is that growth going?
3: Yeah, that is an argument people make um, that, you know, one person I talked to said, I live in rural Georgia, and there was no ABA services in our part of the state. Um, But after this private equity firm came in and opened up new shops, it worked out well. I will say the counter-argument that I've heard to that is that some of these ABA chains are not providing quality ABA. They've called it like the McDonald's of ABA. And you know, one parent said, like, McDonald's, yeah, it's it's technically food, but it's not, you know, nutritious. It's not gonna be good for these kids. Um, and bad ABA is worse than no ABA at all. Um, but I would say from a growth perspective. A lot of these companies are really struggling. I think they've grown too fast in some cases. They're dealing with, like other sectors, just really intense provider shortages. Um, when you're a low paid worker, like um, some of these um, technicians are, they're paraprofessionals, they have high school degrees. I mean, you could go maybe work at Amazon and uh, get, a, get a higher salary. Um, and actually in recent weeks, there's been a lot of clinic closures Uh, at some of these big chains. Um, And then they said, you know, they said it was mostly because of their struggling with provider shortages and insurance reimbursement.
0: So you followed up this piece with another story kind of looking specifically at some of these private equity firms that are really active in the ABA field. And there's a lot of names that were in that piece that kind of have Come up and gotten criticism in other aspects of the healthcare field, like KKR, for example. You know, there's been criticism of how they operate this segment of group homes for people with intellectual and developmental disabilities called Brightspring. Um, you know, they've they've gotten criticized by several uh, senators. Do you get the sense that these firms are get, feeling the pressure to, you know? address this criticism and kind of change their act.
3: Interestingly, um, KKR is also behind one of the biggest ABA chains called Blue Sprig. Um, So I did think that that Bright Spring investigation was very interesting. Um, I don't know about that. I I don't get the sense that they're they're under a lot of pressure. This is not a super regulated area. So I, I don't think there's a ton of oversight, to be honest with you. Um, and they, they, you know, private equity firms never talk <laughs> to reporters, so I wasn't surprised by this, but no one granted me an interview and would talk, you know, in depth about their practices. They just kind of sent written statements. Um, so yeah, I, I guess I would say I, I don't think there's much pressure.
2: Well, kind of to that point, I mean, your story uh, came out this week, obviously it's been out for a few days. What has the reaction been among Just any of the interested parties upon reading it, whether that be parents or, you know, anyone in any kind of, I don't know, affinity group who might apply some of that pressure, whether congressionally or just in some other facet of society.
3: Yeah, I've gotten a lot of responses from parents, actually, which have been pretty heartbreaking. I mean, I've had parents reach out to me and say, you know, I'm really struggling with this issue right now. I've got all these bills piled up from ABA, and I'm not sure if it's the right thing for my kid. They're having these meltdowns. They hate going. Um, And I've also heard from people who work in the ABA field who say, thank you for drawing attention to this. You know, we really need to, um, you know, work on our industry and work on the quality in our industry. Um, I heard from a a regulator in one state who um, had kind of a question about um, other government agencies looking into this and and how I can, um, you know, provide information on that. But the reaction has been really interesting and strong from the autism community. Um, I would say people with autism have said, you know, their reaction to the article is, this doesn't surprise me. ABA is uh, abuse. So that is a, that's a strong contingent of people. And I expected that reaction to this article.
1: So Tara, it was really great reporting. And uh, anyone who's interested in reading it can find it at statnews.com. Uh, Tara, thanks for joining us.
3: Thanks for having me.
2: That does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Thank you to Teresa Gaffney for producing this week's episode.
0: Our senior producers are Hyacinth Empanado and Alyssa Ambrose. Our executive producer is Rick Burke, and our theme music is by Brian Joel.
1: And we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you like about this week's episode and what you didn't like, and whether you think Merck will ever buy Seagen. You can do all that by sending us an email
2: at readoutloud at statnews.com. And if you like what we do, leave a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcast.
0: See you next week.